Welcome to Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology. Hey, Grant. Hi, Bascom. It's been a while since we talked together on one of these. It hasn't been that long. Well, it feels like a long time. Maybe it's just a long summer. Maybe. Hopefully since then, all of our listeners in the Northern Hemisphere have settled into a new academic year. While those in the Southern Hemisphere have been having a productive winter, we here at Anthropod, along with contributors to the SCA website, have also been hard at work. Here are some of the things that you may have missed over the summer. Well, in May, Bascom interviewed Nicholas Davella, a postdoctoral researcher at the Center for Science, Technology, Medicine, and Society at the University of California, Berkeley. Dr. Davella spoke about his essay, Ecologies of Investment, Crisis, Histories, and Brick Futures in Argentina, from the February 2014 issue of Cultural Anthropology. He told us about economic crisis in Argentina and what many people did to maintain their livelihoods and savings. In July and August, we had two episodes to mark the transition of CA to an open-access journal. Jessica Lockram interviewed an array of people involved with publishing and anthropology. Part one asked, what do editors want? Jessica interviewed current CA editor Anne Allison, former editor-in-chief of American anthropologist Tom Bolsdorf, and managing editor of CA, Tim Elfenbein. Part two focused on the process and the infrastructure of publishing. Jessica spoke with the next editors of CA, Dominic Boyer, James Fabian, and Simone Howe, as well as the first editor of CA, George Marcus, and Mary Morell, who talked with us about the future of the book. Together, these two episodes contain an amazing amount of information about how articles in anthropology actually get published and the broader context and challenges facing academic publishing going forward. In September, Jonah Rubin brought us interviews with three scholars in an episode on ethnographies of post-genocide. He spoke with Isaias Rojas Perez, Alexander Hinton, and Elizabeth Drexler, who each work in the aftermath of genocides. All three were part of a panel called Grey Zones and Their Aftermaths. Memory Morning Justice at last year's meeting of the American Anthropological Association in Chicago. You can access all of these episodes at iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or at colanth.org. There have been also some new features added to our website that we'd like to tell you about. To help you keep track of new essays, you can subscribe to our Atom feed. Every time new essays are published, You'll get a notification straight to your favorite RSS reader or news app like Feedly or Flipboard. And for those of you who miss our print journal, you can now purchase hard copies of our new issues through our print-on-demand service. Single issues are just $12.95 and can be ordered from Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other online booksellers. Each purchase helps to support the Society for Cultural Anthropology and our open access model that lets anyone in the world access our journal for free. You can find our Atom feed and print-on-demand service by going to colanth.org and clicking on About the Journal under the Journal menu at the top of the page. Now on to the main attraction, an interview by Rupa Pillai with anthropologist Laura Moran. And Dr. Moran talked to her about young Sudanese refugees in Australia and the music they create. Let's have a listen. Walking 
it all good, make it all good. My name's Little Moon Man, man in the moon. Came to strive because of the war. Ran for my life, not too soon. Got on that plane, had to survive. Try to keep safe, but I lost my faith. Try to keep safe, but I lost my faith. We were born in Africa, born young. Walking every day in a ghetto place. We were born in Africa, hot sun. Walking every day in a ghetto place. Welcome to another installment of Anthropod. I'm Rupa Palai, and I'm speaking with Laura Moran, a recent graduate from the School of Social Sciences at the University of Queensland. Now, Laura, we just heard the opening of the song Born in Africa, which you discuss in your 2013 AAA paper entitled Constructions of Race, Symbolic Ethnic Capital, and the Performances of Youth Identity in Multicultural Australia. To start our conversation, could you share with us how this song came about and Who's performing it? Sure. The, the paper explores how a, a small group of um, young people from Sudanese refugee backgrounds construct this sort of image of a cohesive and overtly racialized ethnic identity in association with one another. And they and they do it through this sort of creative adaptation of American symbolic forms and particularly the hip hop music scene. The, the group that I work with, um, we're, we're part of an after-school program where I conducted some of my field research, and um, we just had a little bit of extra funding one year, and th- they were able to choose what they wanted to do with it, and they chose to write a hip-hop song, and we spent an, a number of Saturdays over a couple of months um, at the after-school program and used the money to record the song at a local studio. Interesting. So um, who was attending the after-school program, and what kind of services did y'all provide? It was it was young people from all different refugee backgrounds, and I I actually had uh, I worked there as the coordinator of the program. It sort of provided some mentoring and tutoring services in the Brisbane area, and and the program became sort of my preliminary research for my doctoral studies and my field work proper. But but then after I started my doctoral field work, I also met a number of research informants and, and some of them are performing in the song just at their local high schools and um, spent time with them in their homes and train stations and shopping centers and sort of other places where they hung out. So it's interesting that these Sudanese refugee young people chose to do a hip hop song. So who exactly were the performers and what was their artistic process like? Well, after they decided they wanted to write a song, they were told they could it could be about whatever they wanted. And they started brainstorming verses. In the end, there was sort of minimal grammatical help from me and a little bit of um, adjustments from the recording studio to fit the the lyrics with the audio track. And it was a group of seven. They were all between 14 and 16 years old. And after they were sort of told it could be about whatever they wanted, they they came up with these sort of American and hip hop references like The Hood and Basketball and President Obama and MTV. And they sort of proposed those ideas in accordance with other references that were more salient to their own lives, like Africa and Sudan. And, and when, and when they became, when they began brainstorming lyrics after this sort of initial period of silence, the first line one of them called out was, we're poor. And then everyone sort of shrieked with laughter and shouted, you, not me, and don't write that. Um, but the first official verse of the song they came up with included lines, the hood in Africa was pretty hard. In order to survive, we had to sell drugs and moving with the thugs, rolling faster than slugs. So there was this sort of juxtaposition between their real experiences of poverty and living in Africa with 
associations of power and toughness through things like selling drugs and hanging out with thugs. So in the in the paper, I argue that this allowed them to sort of subtly shift their self-representation towards a sense of empowerment rather than poverty. They sort of constantly referred to Africa throughout the song as the ghetto place and the hood. And and these are both you know, references used frequently in hip hop music and American slang to describe these poor urban areas in U.S. cities, which was sort of different than their actual experiences in Africa. Well, it's very fascinating since there's so many layers that are going on in terms of their experience of Africa and then coming to Australia and making sense of this new environment and using the language of hip hop of um, American blackness to make sense, but also to make it their own. Um, so what artists were they listening to prior to this project emerging? One, one of the ones, the people that they talked about most frequently was Tupac. That was sort of like a big influence in their lives. And other than that, there was a real broad range, uh, even even a lot of Michael Jackson and things like that. It was sort of they would have a sort of competition of who had the most knowledge or connection to America. So any sort of American artists were were coming up quite a bit. So it's interesting that they're using American artists, but they're not just listening to American artists, as you mentioned in your paper. Right. Right. They they also I think it was the older ones had sort of more some Arabic influences as well, but the younger ones were sort of into this American music scene primarily. Okay, so they're invoking the image of the ghetto and the hood to talk about their experience in Africa. So in many ways, they're they're kind of in conversation with this notion of American blackness, mm-hmm. but their blackness is, is the same as American blackness or is something more complex than that? Well, I think the, the terms... That's that evoke these sort of racist stereotypes of crime and poverty and drugs like the hood and the ghetto and also images of masculinity and toughness. I think for them, the the real association was that they represented just sort of a broad sense of belonging. Like when I would interview them after, you know, individually after the sort of brainstorming lyrics together, they would describe the hood and the ghetto in terms like it's a good place, it's family and friends where I belong, or things like it means you live in the poorest population, but it's all right because it's easier to find more friends. So so I argue that they were able to create a sort of meaning in their own experience of displacement through an alignment with this image of blackness that sort of in its pop cultural association reflects strength and power and influence at the same time that it depicts poverty and disadvantage. Why is it meaningful to access the strength and power in the context of Brisbane, Australia? Well, I I link it back to sort of their experience with Australian multiculturalism and and some of the feelings of displacement and alienation that that they experience in that context. Um, And I could sort of talk a little bit about the context of Australian multiculturalism, since that's sort of where I um, contextualize what I observed in the songwriting process. Definitely, because I'm assuming that Australian multiculturalism is different than American multiculturalism. It is quite different. I think Australia provides this really rich context in which to study these issues of sort of racial identity and national belonging, because it does have this unique combination of demographics where over half the population was either born overseas or have a parent who was, and also recent social history, because um, uh, multiculturalism as official policy emerged in the 1970s. And so just 
briefly here, um, since the Second World War, Australia's had one of the largest and most diverse immigration programs in the Western world. And it's moved in sort of formal policy and rhetoric from an emphasis on assimilation to integration and then finally to this official political and moral framework of multiculturalism. And throughout all of all of these phases, issues of race and ethnicity have been at the forefront, like you know, sometimes explicitly and sometimes more implicitly in Australia's immigration history. And, th- and this can be traced back to the White Australia policy, which was a, a Commonwealth of Australia Constitution Act passed in 1901, and it prevented the immigration of non-white people to settle or work or live in Australia um, temporarily or permanently. And, and it wasn't a- dismantled until the official implement- implementation of multiculturalism in the 1970s. So it, in my research, I draw on Ghassan Hajj's work on multiculturalism which demonstrates how being Australian even today, and this is what the young people experience in in sort of popular representations, has to a large degree relied upon these expressions of Europeanness or whiteness, to which I argue these young people are obviously excluded. Um, And Hodge's conceptualization is important here because while it's assumed that sort of white supremacy is located neatly within the label of racism and multiculturalism, it responds to and and alleviates it. That's not always the case. Instead, multiculturalism itself contains these ideas which can serve to reinforce oppressive power dynamics. So, for example, this notion of reinforcing power dynamics, how might that be experienced by one of the Sudanese young people that worked on this project? Well, I think they obviously they they need to seek a sort of feeling of belonging in that in the context of multiculturalism just out of a a general need to belong, but the idea of multiculturalism is really pervasive in their lives. They're sort of steeped in multiculturalism, I argue, and one of the ways they encounter multiculturalism on a daily basis in their lives is through what I describe as these sort of discourses of integration and tolerance, and they emerge in their school and community environment in relation to a, a kind of abstracted framework of multiculturalism. So as my participants experienced it, these messages of integration and tolerance that are promoted in the school environment, they sort of alternated between a denial of race as a defining characteristic. So teachers would say things like what race isn't an issue at this school. We don't see skin color and, and things like that. And then on the other hand, this celebration or promotion of diversity in ways that young people interpreted as distinguished by their skin color and their their culture of origin. So what kind of um, celebrations of culture might be um, occurring at one of these young people's schools? They had different events. The schools and community groups provided regular opportunities for young people to sort of formally perform their national or cultural or ethnic identities through things like multicultural nights, um, you know, where they were invited to do African dancing or even sometimes to tell the story of how they came to Australia in these sort of formal and celebratory performances. And the majority of my informants appeared to deeply value and, and anticipate the performances, and they were also very much viewed favorably by their families. But my informants also worried a lot about authenticity when when they were participating in these things. Like, for example, when a, a small group of them were doing an African dance performance, 
they were sort of fretting and worrying about and saying, well, what if some Africans come to this? <laughs> so, they could, so the performances were sort of elicited by the schools or the broader community. But there was this conflict between how the young people want to see and project a sense of themselves and how they were sort of framed externally in the in the context of multiculturalism. What if Africans come to the performance? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in a way, they, they have some identity issues going on. Maybe... In certain contexts, they feel like they need to perform African, but not necessarily identify as African. Or, or is that too much of a leap? Um, I think that they did. They did identify as African in some ways, but it was sort of when it was framed externally, it was sort of um, forced sometimes. So they were kind of asked to call upon these different things at different times, and and they had a sense of that. Um, and, and I think those performances. While the young people really did look forward to them, I think they in large part sort of served to validate the accomplishments of the host community as much as celebrate the performers themselves, um, you know, for, for this sort of demonstrated tolerance and for the host community's accumulation of a kind of multicultural capital in terms of ethnic food and dance and art. Definitely. It, it, it does deliver that message of Australia being very accepting and, and tolerant. Mm -hmm. But it also raises that question of the generation divide in terms of performances, because it it seems within the context of the school, when you, you have these multicultural days and the, the young people are performing traditional ethnic performances, it's it's not only for mainstream Australia, but also for that for for that of the older generation. Mm -hmm. So is there a tension between the young generation and the older generation in terms of performances that are done within the context of a multicultural day and um, to the performances of the hip hop song that you all created at the after school program? Well, the, the song itself, it was uh, well received by the broader Australian population and attracted a number of interviews and some airtime on both local and national radio stations. But it wasn't really, I, I sort of left it up to the young people themselves, um, and it wasn't really engaged with their families or the broader refugee population. I think they sort of just came on their own and had permission from their parents, but their parents didn't hear it, as far as I know, or, or discuss it with them. So I could speculate, though, that the sort of assertions of belonging, you know, with each other and in, in association with the, wi the wider Black diaspora were they were treated by the young people themselves and, and probably would have been viewed by their families as somewhat subversive because rather than providing sort of a foundation for integration with what they viewed as the mainstream white population, they, they were sort of reaching further afield. And I think the parents may have preferred that they were sort of articulating a sense of belonging and integration with the more immediate community or, you know, or fitting into this way of performing their refugee identity in, in ways that were expected of them. Well, that brings us to this notion of symbolic ethnic capital that you discuss in your paper. As you mentioned earlier, performing hip hop was a way to empower these youth. And in a way, this empowerment is uh, associated to ethnic capital. Mm -hmm. So what exactly is ethnic capital and what is it doing for these young individuals? Sure. Well, as, as I said, the song they wrote was was primarily about these articulations of blackness. And I interpret the links that the young people made in defining their own terms and experiences of blackness as sort of evidence of their use of capital. So broadly in my work, I refer to Bourdieu's 
conceptualization of cultural and social capital as a set of resources and capacities that ultimately enable a sense of belonging and membership within a group. Um, and, and the- I'm sorry, just, just to interject really quickly, for listeners who might not be aware of Bordeaux's notions of, uh, well, the various, the various capitals of Bordeaux, um, what exactly is the social capital? Um, well, I, I interpret it as just a set of resources and capacities, and they can include things like material cultural goods like art and books and the like, as well as sort of embodied and dispositional characteristics, such as in the national field, for example, um, things like appearance and accent or different preferences for behavior. And I I look at how the relationship between ethnicity and both social and cultural capital has been taken up by lots of scholars in terms of questions of disadvantage. And I sort of look at that as a, a starting point um, because there's a, the concept of ethnic capital, which was first conceptualized by um, scholar named Tariq Madud and, and um, extended by people like Greg Noble and colleagues. This, instead of highlighting ethnicity as disadvantage in terms of capital, it highlights a sort of productive relationship between ethnicity and the accumulation of capital for, for primarily for purposes of social and educational achievement. So performing one's ethnicity becomes a way of empowering them in society then, right? Sure, yes. And in, in its um, original use, ethnic capital sort of, uh, Madud's study demonstrated how a group of British young people of ethnic minority backgrounds achieved um, greater levels of social mobility and educational achievement than their white working class counterparts in Britain. And he attributed that to higher levels of parental investment. And so that's an example of ethnic capital. And it's, it's traditionally understood as emerging through the transmission of aspirations and attitudes and norms from parents to children of ethnic minority backgrounds. And what I describe in my paper as symbolic ethnic capital, and I'm sort of still playing with the terms um, an emergence not through family, but through the transmission of norms and attitudes that emerge from these diasporic connections among young people from minority ethnic backgrounds, which I argue are sort of self-fashioned on the basis of a highly racialized sense of ethnicity. So in a way, these Sudanese youth who who have this refugee experience that are are living in Australia are now being connected to not only Africa, but with the American black community through this hip hop. Mm -hmm. So they're entering into this notion of uh, transnational blackness. That's right. And they can sort of find the things that they find empowering and that they want to use to define their experience through that. You mentioned earlier that this after-school program is open to many communities. Is there a particular reason why only Sudanese refugee youth individuals participated? Um, the, the two primary groups I had, um, a group of Sudanese young people and a group of Karen young people, which are persecuted group from the Thai-Burma border. And those were the main groups. It just sort of logistically happened to come to that program. And um, I think in the beginning, there was a time when the Korean young people were going to join as well, and they just didn't end up participating in that project. I think a big reason why was it was mostly um, it was mostly 
uh, Sudanese boys and the Karin group were mostly girls and they were a bit younger and they kind of, they just didn't quite mix. So they didn't participate in this particular project, but they were also into the hip hop thing. And some of those same dynamics were happening among the Karin young people. Well, that's another aspect. You, you mentioned that there were seven individuals who wrote and performed the song. Were they all men? There was only one uh, girl and she was the sister of one of the others. So, yeah, they were mostly men. And I think three of the seven were from one family. A few were cousins. So it, it became a, quite a small, intimate group of people that were connected through, you know, family. And and I think we had a, a bigger group to start, but, you know, people dropped off and that's just who wound up participating. Are any of these individuals aspiring to continue pursuing hip hop in any capacity in their lives? Yeah, there there are a couple, and there are these um, government-funded programs in Australia, that's Police Citizens Youth Club, where they do a lot of hip hop with the young people as well. And some of them had already record had already done some recording and things through that. And I think that's how they came up with the idea to do it. So I think probably two, maybe three of the seven still are are doing some kind of recording and and music. I'm sure they were quite excited about hearing their song on the radio. Oh, they were. That was really exciting. And they, they, we heard it a few times when the radio station would sort of say they were going to play it. And we did some interviews, but then once or twice just on their regular playlist, not in a sort of youth music part. You know, they were played back to back with people like Ben Harper. So that was really exciting for them. And they would say, where's the money? We're <laughs> going to get paid. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Uh, were they only heard in Brisbane? There was one national, nationally broadcasted station that played the song a few times that I heard, yeah. Well, now they get to be heard via Anthropods. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Laura, thanks for sharing their story and explaining Australian multiculturalism and symbolic ethnic capital to us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Be sure to check out the show notes for this episode, as well as previous Anthropod podcasts on our website, www.colanth.org. As always, you can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Also, you can find the Society for Cultural Anthropology on Facebook and Twitter at Colanth. We leave you with B Unit song, Born in Africa in its entirety. Thanks for listening to another episode of Anthropod. Born in Africa, born young, walking every day in a ghetto place. We're born in Africa, hot sun, walking every day in a ghetto place. Came to Australia, left the hood. Came to Australia when we could. Now we wanna go back to a better place. Make it all good, make it all good. My name's Little Moon Man, man in the moon. Came to Australia because of the war. Ran for my life, not too soon. Got on that plane, had to survive. Try to keep safe, but I lost my faith. Try to keep safe, but I lost my faith. We were born in Africa, born young, walking every day in a ghetto place. We were born in Africa, hot sun, walking every day in a ghetto place. Basketball is my favorite sport. I'm running with the president on the court. I got arrested and went to jail. They didn't give me any bail. So many nets, it was a crime. Too many points in my time. Still on my mind, in my court. Cause the girls mess me up. So I just wanna go play ball. Hawaja Africa, Hawaja Africa. We were born in Africa. Born young, walking every day in a ghetto place. We were born in Africa. Hot sun, walking every day in a ghetto place.
comes from Africa, I'm too black. I see people white, but I'm too black. They eat octopus, I eat vegetables. They eat for two, but I eat fruit. They said my place is where I live today. But someday my place is where I used to live. There's so many special memories. There's so many special memories. We were born in Africa. Born young, walking every day in a ghetto place. We were born in Africa. Hot sun, walking every day in a ghetto place. I never thought that I would leave this place Sitting in the plane thinking about my fate The first school I went to was so gay As they say, do the right thing and stay safe Stay safe I got in detention for saying one thing I got all the attention that I need It's a big white nation with the next generation Follow the operation or end up on probation And all this place hurts but you can't go back Back to the hood Back to the hood Where I live right now it's so good We were born in Africa Born young Walking every day in a ghetto place We were born in Africa Hot sun Walking every day in a ghetto place Came to Australia Left the hood Came to Australia When we could Now we wanna go back to a better place Make it all good Make it all good We got the hood in this place But Africa's the best We got the hood in this place But Africa's the best We got the hood in this place But Africa's the best We got the hood in this place But Africa's the best Seen a lot of places, seen a lot of hoods, seen a lot of places like I never seen a place just like this. My homies in the back, while my homies in the back. I never been a lot of places, need my homies in the back, but I never wanna see them, I never wanna be them, I never wanna click like bam in the read them as I go in different hood, but I wanna go back to the hood. G, 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 G. But the Africa's the best. The Africa's the best. But the Africa's the best. But the Africa's the best. Yeah, that's right. We get the hood in this place, but Africa's the best. We get the hood in this place, but Africa's the best. We get the hood in this place, but Africa's the best.